Hey folks, welcome to part four in our You Were Made For This teaching series. And today we're going to be looking at why having a dream from God for our lives is so vital as we seek to discover our true identity and purpose. But let me start by asking you this. When you were much younger, when you were a child, do you remember when people would come up to you and and say to you things like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you dreaming about? It reminds me of years and years ago, we had the African Children's Choir come and perform at Zio. And it was an amazing evening. The building was packed. The atmosphere was electric. And there was this one moment that stands out forever in my memory, where one by one, all of these children came up to the center mic. They shared their name and they shared their dream. I remember someone coming up saying, my name is Coejo, and one day I will be a lawyer. And everyone in the room cheered and celebrated. Another girl comes up, my name is Nashimwi, and one day I will be a doctor. More cheers resound across the building. And then someone else, my name is Maisha, and one day I will be prime minister. And the whole building erupts, followed by a few oohs as well. And I remember being up on the balcony, seeing these kids who were maybe aged six to ten years old, expressing their dreams, and something inside of me wanted to go, yes, absolutely, dream big. Believe something big about your lives, because the God who loves you, the God who created you, created you for a purpose, to dream big, to make your mark upon the world. Like One of my favorite passages is Ephesians 3.20. It's a, it's a verse in the New Testament and the Apostle Paul writes that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We can ask or dream. We are called to be people who dream. I want to ask you, what are your dreams? What is the vision that's captivating your life? Or maybe as you're listening to me right now, your dreams have been decaying. Maybe they've been discarded. Maybe even as you hear my voice, your dreams have died because of the pressures and the pain and the struggles of life. This morning, God wants to reignite a dream in your life. He wants to set vision alight again for you today as we continue this series, You Were Made For This. So far, we've been looking at some good biblical foundations for identity and purpose. But today, we launch deeper into this series by studying one of my favorite characters in the Bible, an Old Testament character called Joseph, made famous by Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Joseph and His Technicolor Dreamcoat. Come on, sing with me. I close my eyes. Okay, maybe not, maybe not. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. But uh, uh, if you've got a Bible, then grab it, open it up, because I want to kick off Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to read just the first 10 verses. This is Genesis 37. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, God's story. And it says this. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things that his brothers were doing. 
Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. One day, Jacob made a special gift for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. Listen to this dream, Joseph said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up and all of your bundles gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, Joseph said. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, his father asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Now, Joseph's story is told in in Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. And so listen, brief spoiler alert to introduce this this part of our series. I'm going to give you a broad brush overview of the whole of Joseph's story. And then from now on, right up until July, we're going to dig into this story to see how it speaks to us through his life experience about our identity and purpose. And, and let me really encourage you to join one of our You Were Made For This groups so that you can go deeper into this teaching, chatting it through, grappling, praying, and thinking how it applies to your life. So, in a sense, Joseph's story actually begins in Genesis chapter 12. Because in Genesis chapter 12, we get the story of Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, who's 75 years old, having a life-changing encounter with God. And in this encounter, God gives Abraham a vision, a dream. God tells Abraham that he has been chosen, this man Abraham, to become the father of a great nation, the nation that we know today as Israel, the Jewish people. And God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you and the nation that will come out of you and they will be a blessing to all the world. And Abraham embraces that vision. He says a yes to it, even though he understandably is grappling with how can that ever come true when I'm 75 years old, my wife is old, we can't seem to have children. How will this play out? And yet he trusts God. 11 years later, and there's still no child for Abraham and Sarah. And so they grow with impatience, and they decide to help God a little. And so Abraham ends up sleeping with Hagar, who's their maid, and Hagar gives birth to a son, Ishmael. But God's not pleased with this because Ishmael is not the son of promise. Although in Genesis 21, 18, God does promise that Ishmael will himself become a great nation. 
It's 13 years later, 24 years after this vision for Abraham's life, that God miraculously opens up the womb of Sarah and she gives birth to Joseph's granddad, Isaac. Isaac grows up and he marries a lovely lady called Rebecca. And then, interestingly, they too have this incredible struggle to have kids. But eventually, again, God miraculously opens up Rebecca's womb and they give birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, there is a huge rivalry between Esau and Jacob as they're growing up, which is made profoundly worse by the fact that their mum and dad, Isaac and Rebecca, played favorites. And so Esau was the favorite son of Isaac, whereas Jacob was the favorite son of Rebekah. And things really come to blows when Jacob deceives his half-blind elderly father to give him the special blessing and inheritance that should have been reserved for the firstborn son, Esau. Esau is enraged and makes these murderous threats towards Jacob. And so Jacob skips the county. He flees. He gets far away from his murderous twin brother. And then this story unfolds with more dramatic twists and turns than a crazy BBC One soap opera. Poor old Jacob, he ends up marrying the wrong woman. He marries Leah when he really wanted to marry her sister, Rachel. Although eventually he comes to marry Rachel and then begins this, over a number of years, this crazy birth off between Leah and between Rachel. Rachel finds again that she can't have children, but Leah is having loads of children. Some of the maids that support them have loads of children, but Rachel remains barren. And this is hard for Leah because, again, despite all of the favoritism things that Jacob experienced with Esau, he then treats Rachel like his favorite. It's not until many years later that Rachel finally gives birth to a son, and that son is Joseph, followed by one more, which is Benjamin, taking the total number of sons of Jacob to 12, the 12 sons. Now, is everyone tracking? We've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great-grandfather, the grandfather, and then the father of Joseph. And if you flip in your Bibles to Genesis 32, you'll see that God then changes Jacob's name to Israel, and, and uh, his 12 sons will become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, which becomes the outworking of God's promise and vision to Abraham. Now, we've looked back. Let's look forward 2,000 years. One of those tribes of Israel is the tribe of Judah. And one of the descendants in the tribe of Judah is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who entered human history to become a man, to show us what God is like, and through his agonizing death on the cross, take on the powers of sin and sickness and suffering and death, and defeat them three days later through being uh, risen from the dead. 
And through his death and resurrection, Jesus, who is in the line of the tribe of Judah, is able to restore everyone back into relationship with God, to be forgiven and to live with God forever, both now and in all eternity. Through Jesus, that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is ultimately fulfilled because Jesus is the true Israelite who becomes the blessing to every single nation of the world. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let me rewind. I share this backstory for three reasons. Firstly, it's a powerful reminder that God in his grace and kindness is able to work through people who are broken and messed up. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we'll discover it in Joseph, and through all of the Old Testament characters up until Jesus, people make mistakes, they screw up, they get things wrong, and yet God is able to use them, work through them to do wonderful things. I don't know what you feel about yourself today, whether you have disqualified yourself from a great adventure from God. Well, Jesus is here by his spirit to tell you it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been. God loves you and he's chosen you despite your brokenness, because in your weakness and in your frailty, God is strong in you to do great things. You are not disqualified. And the second reason I tell this uh, backstory is because not only does God work through difficult, broken, messed up people, but he's still able to work through broken, difficult, messed up situations. Time and time again, as we'll discover even in Joseph's story, it felt like things were impossible. It felt like there was no hope. It felt like things would never play out well. It felt like the cards were stacked against them, and yet God is able to weave the mess and brokenness of our lives into something beautiful and wonderful and good. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.28. He says, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It's not that God causes the suffering and pain that you're in, but God takes the brokenness of your life and he forms something beautiful in and through you. This backstory of Joseph, the fourth story of Jesus reminds us that God can work through broken people, broken situations. And thirdly, I share it with you because it's a powerful reminder that God always, always, always keeps his promises. That if God gives you a dream, a vision, if God says something over your life, then it will come into being. The issue is not the issue. The issue is what has God said, and that's what we hold on to. And that's what we're going to discover in the life of Joseph. As his story plays out, it plays out in a three-act play. So part one, act one, is the first 17 years of Joseph's life. We've just read a bit about that. And we see that Joseph's family, like the family line before him, is fairly dysfunctional. There is jealousy and hatred brewing towards Joseph for three reasons. We read them in the text in Genesis 37. Reason number one, Joseph is a blabbermouth. Verses 2, he tells tales on his brother. No one likes a tattletale, let's be honest. No one likes a grass. He tells tales on his brother so they don't like him. Secondly, he is the beloved. Verses 3 to 4, he is a favorite son. All his brothers know that his father loves him more than any other. 
And you would think that Jacob would know how toxic favoritism is in is because of what he himself experienced with the favoritism that his parents expressed towards him and his brother Esau. Someone once said that those who don't learn the mistakes of the past are destined to repeat them. So he's a blabbermouth. Uh, he is uh, the beloved. And then thirdly, he is a big head. We read that in verses 5 to 10. He's got these dreams, these big dreams that his whole family will one day bow down to him and they hate him for it. But here's the interesting thing. This vision, these two dreams that he has that we read about in verses 5 to 10 are actually from God. They are actually going to come true. The problem is he doesn't have right now as a 17-year-old the character to contain the calling that God has for his life. And so he speaks it out in a way that would be wiser for him to hide it in his heart, to hold it, to believe, okay, I think God's going to do something, but I'm not going to blab it out. I'm not going to be big-headed about it. He didn't have the character to hold the calling that God had for him. And so because of that, he has to step into the character furnace of God so that God can prepare him and have him ready for his destiny. And that is what happens then in Act 2 of the story. Age 17, right through to the age of 30, everything goes terribly badly for Joseph. His life spins out of control. He is nearly killed by his brothers, but in the end he's sold as a slave. They tell his father, Jacob, that he's been killed. He's taken thousands of miles to another country. He ends up literally working as a slave in a high-ranking uh, official's home. He's then imprisoned for years on a false rape charge. And in these whole 13 years, this furnace, this crucible of, of character, like wondering, no doubt, like any of us would, like what happened to the dream? What happened to the vision? Where is God in all of this? Until age 30, Act 3 kicks off, and he suddenly finds himself propelled from the prison to the palace and becomes the prime minister, second only to Pharaoh. And he successfully leads Egypt through one of the worst seven-year famines that they have ever experienced, not just for them, but all the nations surrounding and it's in the context of this, 20 years after they sold their brother as a slave, that Joseph's brother leave Canaan where they're dying from this famine, and they come to try to get some food from Egypt. And they meet the prime minister, but they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And this is the moment, friends. This is the character test. How Joseph deals with this situation will determine the future of Israel will determine whether 2,000 years later this nation will be alive from generation to generation so that Jesus will come. This stake is pretty high. This is an amazing story. I can't wait for us to get into it over these coming weeks as we think about identity and purpose. But today I just want to think about in the rest of the time we have how important visions and dreams are. Because as we've seen, at the age of 17, God gives Joseph a vision of something that will actually happen 20 years later. 
And as we'll see throughout this story, there are numerous dreams and visions that happen in this story. But Joseph, I would suggest to you, holds faithfully onto God in the midst of the suffering and the sorrow and the struggles that he goes through. Yes, there are high points, but there are many more low points. He holds on faithfully to God. And one of the big reasons that he's able to do that is because God has given him a dream. God has given him a promise. God has given him a vision. And he's holding that vision, daring to believe that even though his current circumstances don't look like it, he's holding on to it, believing this is not what I think should be happening, but God has shown me this. So I'm holding on to this until this becomes like this. Holding on faithfully, because this is what vision does for us. Let me tell you three things that vision does. Number one, vision captivates us. Vision captivates us. It gets into our bones. In Proverbs 29 verse 11, we're reminded of this. The wise man Solomon, he said, where there is no vision, the people perish. And the Hebrew word for vision here is harzon. And it, and it doesn't mean any old vision, not a vision for a nice house or a nice car, nothing wrong with those things. But this is a vision from God. This is a revelation from God. This is a word from God. This is something from God to you, for you, and for the world. And Solomon's saying, unless we have a divine revelation, unless we have a sense of a vision from God, then people will perish. Why? Because we become self-centered. We become lost. We lose restraint. We become focused on the wrong things. We embrace the wrong story where God's vision is his best story for your life. And when you embrace God's vision, when you're captivated by God's vision, you become other-centered. You live for the good of the world. You live to see God break out in human history in and through your life. You, you live to see God's kingdom come and will be done in in and through you into the world and the place that God's called you. When, when you embrace that, people won't perish. People will find life and life in all its fullness. Vision captivates you. Like Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. He says, yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. It's like, like this vision from God to see people experience the freedom of knowing Jesus, to be forgiven, to know that their eternity is secure, to know that they are loved and that they are becoming more like Jesus, free from what holds them back and free for the good things that God has got for them. That vision captivates him and it also compels him. That's the second thing that vision does. Vision captivates us, it gets into our bones, but it compels us to action. It's something that it's so in us that we think, I must do something about this. Nelson Mandela once said, actions without vision is only passing the time. Vision without action is merely daydreaming, but vision with action can change the world. And if anyone knows what that looks like, it's Nelson Mandela who spent nearly 30 years in a prison because he believed that the, the tyranny and the brokenness and the prejudice and the injustice of apartheid had to end in his lifetime. And he held on to that vision. It captivated and it compelled him to action. And he saw that happen. But it was costly, very costly for Mandela. And vision is, thirdly, 
costly. It costs us to hold a vision. It costs us for a whole bunch of reasons. It costs us because when you have a a vision for a different future, a better future, a better reality, it costs you because right now you're not there and that's painful. It's frustrating when you are living in hope and yet the hope isn't there. It's costly. It's costly because God never promises us an easy, straight path. We live in a world that is broken. We don't just go from here to there in a straight line. The journey of life and faith takes us all over the place. Successes and failures, disappointments and struggles, great high points and great low points. That's what we see in the life of Abraham. It was costly to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and it will be costly for us. Joseph ends up unfairly imprisoned. He ends up sold out as a slave. He ends up with a criminal record against his name. All of these things, it was costly, but he never gave up. Because even though it's costly, vision, because it captivates you and because it compels you, even though it's costly, vision becomes the fuel to help you keep on keeping on and never ever give up. I remember in the early years, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of being involved in youth ministry now as a volunteer for 33 years. And, uh, and I remember in the early years, I'd come home on maybe even a monthly basis and I'd flop into my chair and I'd say to my family, you know what? I just feel like giving up on the youth ministry. They're a miserable bunch of reprobates and they all hate me. And, and I was just talking about the leaders, not even the young people. Like, you know, I just wanted to quit. But from the age of 17, God has put a passion in my heart to see children and young people and young adults have a living, vibrant, exciting, adventurous relationship with Jesus. That my ceiling of faith and life would become the floor, the launch pad from which they would go on to do greater things. There's a verse in the Psalms where where the psalmist said, even when I'm old and gray, Lord, don't give up on me that I can pass on your good news to the rising generation. And that is me, my dying breath God has captivated me by a vision to see children and young people know Jesus. And so if I live to 100, the last thing I want to say in this earth is young people, children, live for Jesus, go for Jesus. There's nothing better because vision becomes the fuel that helps you keep on keeping on even when you want to quit, even when you want to give up. And if you want the best example of that, look at Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who the writer in Hebrews said this, Hebrews 12.2. Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus faced the agony of the cross. He was tortured, he was whipped, he was beaten, the beard was pulled out of his face. He was crucified. He, He was in absolute physical, spiritual, emotional agony. And as he hung on the cross in a way that I can't understand, in his amazing divinity, he knew that one day, 2,000 years later, a bunch of his followers in Zeo Church in Hitchin would be trying to pursue and press his good news. And for that, Jesus, I will take the nails. I'll take whatever it costs because I want to see billions and billions in the family of God. Vision costs us, but it helps us to keep going. In his book, Leadership is Pain, Samuel Chan Chan puts it this way. He says, when we're in pain, we quickly notice the default setting on the human heart. Run, 
blame, smother the hurt with busyness, or act like nothing's wrong. To persevere, Chan says, we need a vision for the future that's bigger than our pain. We need a vision for the future. Divine vision captivates us, compels us, and costs us. It helps us push through, even when, even when things look hopeless. I, I love that quote from Pete Gilbert where he says, you know what, sometimes God takes years to do something in seconds. Like, like maybe your dream, which you've been praying for and believing for and acting towards for years, maybe decades, maybe it seems further away, but maybe it's going to break through tomorrow. So keep pressing, keep pushing, keep believing. How do you get a vision like that, just as I finish? Like, you know, maybe you're listening to me and you feel, like, I don't think I've got a vision that gets me up in the morning. I don't feel like I've got a vision that captivates me and compels me that I'm willing to pay a cost for. How do you get that vision? Let me quickly remind you that today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day when 2,000 years ago, a group of Jesus followers, 10 days after Jesus had returned to heaven, are gathered in an upper room and they're passionately praying and the Holy Spirit comes like never before, fills them, baptizes them, immerses them, drenches them in the power of God and, and the church is birthed, the birthday of the church. And, and, and as all heaven is breaking loose, all the crowds are gathering going like, what is going on here? And Peter stands up under the power of the Holy Spirit and he preaches this incredible message. And as a result of that, 3,000 people are saved. But as people are asking what's going on here, Peter quotes from an Old Testament passage, Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. And he says this. Let me tell you, this is what's going on here. He says to the people, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see dreams, visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. And I will pour out my spirit in these days and they will prophesy. Let me just say three things before I finish and explode with passion. Number one. He says, we're living in the last days. Friends, we right now are living in the last days. That phrase, the last days, literally means the time period between Jesus ascending back to heaven 40 days after he rose again and the, the period of time through which he will then return. You know, Jesus is coming back. It's a promise. He's going to come back and he's going to restore the whole of creation and those who are part of his family will live with him in that new creation with physical, healed bodies, never to die or get cancer or sickness again for all eternity. And so the last days is the period of time between the ascension and Jesus' return. So we still, like these guys 2,000 years ago, we are living in the last days. What happens in the last days? Second thing, God's pouring out his spirit. That's what happens in the last days. It happened 2,000 years ago, and it's still happening now. God is pouring out his spirit on his family. This word pour literally means to gush, to generously distribute. I don't know if you've ever been to Wimbledon. I've been a, a couple of times privileged to be taken. And if you, if you get strawberries and cream at Wimbledon, you get like four strawberries and like someone just like a tiny little bit of cream. This is not the way God pours out his spirit. Like this would be uh, gallons of strawberries with buckets loads of cream. God wants to pour his spirit in and through your life. God wants to fill his people with his power for his mission. And what happens? Here's the interesting thing. Don't miss this, church. 
Don't miss this, friends. Don't miss this as you're listening. We're living in the last days right now. God is pouring out his spirit. And what's the first thing that happens when people are full of the spirit of God? They dream. They dream. They don't heal. They don't raise the dead. They don't, they don't see people get saved. They, the first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you is you get a vision from God. You get a vision from God. And that is my prayer for you today as I start to finish. Because the big question is not, is your vision bigger than someone else's? Because as we'll discover next week when Amy shares, comparison kills us. The, 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 the question for you today as you grapple with vision is not, is my vision big or small? The question is simply, will you say yes or no to it? Will you say yes or no to the vision that God's got for you? Maybe the vision that God has for you is that you are going to adopt a child and you're going to bring them the love and security that they need. Maybe the vision that God's got for you is that you will establish the culture of heaven in your workplace. Maybe it's to bring the influence of Jesus into the music industry. Maybe you're going to be a powerful, positive kingdom voice in the world of social media. Maybe it's a vision to rage against injustice and poverty and human trafficking and climate change. Maybe you've got a vision to relentlessly love and serve your neighbors or to see loads of people get saved. It doesn't matter what the vision is. It just matters that God has got a vision for you. And whether you accept it, receive it, and it captivates you, compels you, and it costs you to keep on going. We know we live in a world. We know that things are not as they should be. But as the people of God, the family of God, there's a vision where we can imagine for a different reality. I love this quote from George Bernard Shaw. He said, some people see things as they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask, well, why not? Why can't things be different? Jim Wallace says, hope is believing despite the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Hope is believing despite the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Friends, there is a divine vision and revelation for your life. Something that just has your name, that's bound up in your identity and purpose. God wants to, you to steward it well, carry the calling, cultivate the character that enables you to hold it well. And so... As we, as we come to finish, I want to pray, pray two prayers. And the first is, if, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have not made him your Lord and Savior so that you can be forgiven of trying to live for yourself rather than live for God and embrace and receive God's Holy Spirit for your new life with God, I'm going to say a prayer. And the prayer is simply this. Lord Jesus, I am sorry that I have said and done and thought things that have damaged me and other people offended you. I've tried to be the boss of my own life, lived for myself rather than the God who created me. Forgive me. I am sorry. Thank you that you love me so much that you died on the cross bearing all of the consequences of my sin, my selfishness, my shame, my sickness, suffering, even death itself. And you defeated those things so that I can be forgiven and restored into relationship with God for now and all eternity. And, and now, God, I invite you, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your power to live like the son and daughter that you created me to be. Amen. If you pray
prayed that prayer right now, then I want to encourage you, go to our website, zeochurch.com forward slash connect. Go to zeochurch.com forward slash connect and just leave a message there because I would personally love to come back to you and support you and help you in as you seek to respond to Jesus in this newfound journey of faith. But before I hand back to Marku and to Alex, here's a prayer for the rest of us. Where are your dreams? Like I know that there are some of you watching this. This has been a tough message because your dreams have been discarded. Your dreams have been decayed. Your dreams feel like they're dead. And friends, let me be honest. I know there are some of you who actually know that things you've hoped for really aren't going to happen. Like that, that person did die. That relationship didn't pan out. You didn't get that job that you were wanting. And I realize the agony and the pain of that. But God still has a dream for you. Your life is not over. Because if you're breathing, there's something for you. There's a place for you. And so I want to pray for us now on this Pentecost Sunday that right where you are, the Holy Spirit will come and bring healing from the pain of lost dreams. And heaven will start to put new dreams, new hopes into your very soul. And so if you feel able in this moment just to, just to close your eyes just for a moment, just so that you're not distracted. And I want to pray and prophesy a vision from God. I pray right now where you are that the Holy Spirit will come that the Holy Spirit will come and rest on you, that you will be aware of the very presence and the power of God. That the Holy Spirit, just like He did 2,000 years ago, will come and fill you. Fill you. Fill you with fire again. Fill you with passion again. Fill you with hope again. Fill you with strength again. And fill you with vision again. God give you a dream, whatever that dream could be. Again, it's not big or small. It's just yes or no. God give you a dream. Come on. Come on. God give you a dream right now where you are. Right now. I'm talking to you. Not the person next to you. Not someone else who's watching. I'm talking to you. God give you a dream. Your life is not over. There's more for you. There are good things for you. God wants to give you a dream. Bound up in who you are. Beloved of him. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that dreams will come. Dreams in the night and dreams in the day. Dreams that will realize that you have chosen us to join you with all creation in singing the song of the Lord to bring hope to a broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.